Blog Talk Radio. everybody welcome to the show um so joe manchin is on everybody's mind because he's doing very joe manchin things uh i will rip him to shreds and i will do that very shortly the second story is on joe manchin um we have donald trump and mike pence breaking up this time it looks for real these we'll talk about that we also have uh biden seeking the advice of the worst person in the world I'll tell you who the worst person in the world is, and um, you'll understand why it's disastrous that Biden is in communication with this person. We have the dumbest criticism of AOC I've ever heard, and that's saying a lot because a lot of the criticism of her is really stupid. Um, And then later on in the show, I got Dave Rubin, I got Milo Yiannopoulos, I got uh, the Chicken McNugget story that everybody's talking about. If you don't know what that is, just wait. <laughs> you won't believe it when you hear the specifics. And the legalizing weed is becoming um, basically like, it's basically a test for how progressive we can make the legislation. So various states are legalizing weed, and they're trying different um, progressive approaches in doing so. So we'll talk about that and much more. But uh, first and foremost, I want to lead with a story from NBC News that should drive you fucking crazy. It drove me fucking crazy. Um, And you'll understand why in just a second. So let's go ahead and get started. NBC News um, has 
an article that they released about Joe Biden and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And this nearly gave me an aneurysm when I saw the title. So the title is, the health insurance public option might be fizzling. The left is okay with that. Biden left it out of his budget. The left is focused on other ideas like expanding Medicare and the healthcare industry is dead set against it. So, I mean, the healthcare industry is dead set against any kind of reform other than just handing them colossal subsidies and padding their bottom line. But the idea that the left is okay with abandoning any sort of real health care reform, that is infuriating. So let me tell you a little bit more of what they say in this. I'll, sh- I'll show you the beginning. When President Barack Obama abandoned a public insurance option to win moderate support for the Affordable Care Act in 2009, progressives were enraged. A decade later, Joe Biden campaigned on making the public option a reality, but so far he's done little to get Congress to enact one. Correction, he's done nothing. Instead of outrage, influential progressives seem to be okay watching the promise go unfilled, preferring to pursue universal health care through other means, like expanding Medicare eligibility. Elected officials, health care activists, and experts who spoke to NBC News said the issue has fallen off the national radar and will be difficult to revive without a major push by the White House. That last part there is the thing that might put me in an early grave. Again, I want to repeat it. Healthcare activists and experts who spoke to NBC News said the issue has fallen off the national radar. No, no, it's not even close to falling off the national radar. In fact, when you poll the American people, the number one issue on the minds of Americans, and this is in most polls I've seen that look into stuff like this, it's healthcare. The number one issue of the American people is healthcare for understandable reasons. I mean, healthcare bills are the number one cause of bankruptcy in this country. It's over 60% of bankruptcies have something to do with medical bills. We have about 25 million uninsured people in this country. We have anywhere from 45,000, I think there was one study that even said up to 60,000 people die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. We also have a pandemic. So that's obviously putting immense financial stress and pressure on regular people. And everybody wants some sort of solution to our health care crisis. So the idea that it's fallen off the national radar is just plain and simple, pure rank propaganda. That's all that is. That's propaganda. That's defending Joe Biden and working backwards from that position. Now, to be fair to them, they do sort of hint at a couple parts in this article. What they mean is, no, no, no. It's, we're talking about the left of elected representatives. We're talking about the left flank of the Democratic Party in Washington, D.C. And I have to say, on that front, yeah, healthcare kind of has dropped off their radar, but they're not representative of the American people. We sent them there to be representative of the American people, but they're not echoing the concerns of the American people. They're largely going along to get along with minor deviations from the Biden administration. 
So on that front, it's kind of true, and it's beyond devastating. It actually is, it, it speaks terribly of the institutional left. That's what I think we should call them from now on when we talk about politicians who are supposed to be the left flank. They're the institutional left. And for them, yeah, you know, um, during the Democratic primary, the arguments were some were for Medicare for all, some were for watered-down versions of Medicare for all, and then everybody else was like public option. Well, now that Biden's elected, he immediately abandoned the public option. So definitely not getting Medicare for all, now abandoning the public option. And the thing that Bernie and other, you know, left flank institutional lefties are supporting, they're like, okay, by the way, first Bernie said, let's lower the Medicare age to 55 or 60. When I heard that, my initial reaction was, oh, it's definitely not going to be 55. Because if you say or, and then put a higher number there, of course, they're going to default to the least amount of change. And that's exactly what happened. So now it's, they're talking about Medicare at 60. So, you know, listen, to defend them or to, to play devil's advocate here, they would argue, hey, maybe this is just as good of a reform as a public option, and it's maybe something that Biden would actually do. So that's what we're going to talk about. But again, your job, if you're elected and you're on the left, is not to figure out how best to color within the line. It's to change the entire conversation to make it so that good policies are within the lines. You have to shift that Overton window. You have to take on the fight, but they're unwilling to take on the fight. I mean, we have polls that show 70% of the American people are for universal health care, Medicare for all. You're not going to take on that fight? And the answer is they're not because, again, the leadership of the Democratic Party in D.C. is completely against Medicare for all, and many of them are bought by health insurance companies. So the left abandons that. Then apparently they even abandoned the public option, which is beyond embarrassing. And now here we are. So now they're fighting for Medicare at 60. Guess what? They're not going to get that either. So not only did you compromise on the compromise, this is the left flank I'm talking about now. They compromised on the compromise. They're not even going to get that. Well, if you're not going to get it, why would you not at least go down guns blazing? Why would you not at least go down making the most vociferous, aggressive case you could possibly make for Medicare for all and then you look like the heroes in the eyes of the American people. Yes, the media is going to smear you. Yes, they're going to act like you're the problem. You can fight back against the media. You can fight back, but they don't want to do it. They don't want to fight. But this idea is driving me crazy. It goes to show you the Overton window in Washington, D.C., among elected officials, is so far to the right compared to the Overton window among the American public. We're going to get to a story later. The idea of a wealth tax. More Republican voters support a wealth tax than don't. Now, you've been led to believe your entire life that's not the case at all, that Republicans never met a tax cut that they didn't like. Turns out that's not true. When you talk about taxing the rich, more of them support it than oppose it. So you have the Democratic voters overwhelmingly supporting a wealth tax, and you have Republican voters overwhelmingly supporting a wealth tax. And guess what? Nobody's really fighting for a wealth tax. So what are we doing here? It just goes to show you that among the people, they're much more reasonable. You know, what was the poll? 80% or something support a living wage? And you have... Even the left flank of the Democratic Party, the institutional left, wouldn't fight for a $15 minimum wage. They wouldn't hold up a bill for it. So what are we doing here? This is embarrassing, is what I'm trying to tell you guys. It's embarrassing. The left is okay with abandoning the public option. Not only am I not okay with them abandoning the public option, I'm not okay with them abandoning Medicare for all. 
and 70% of the country agrees with me on Medicare for all. And I want to hear these arguments being made, not just from shitty YouTubers like myself. I want to hear elected representatives go out there and make the points I just made before, that up to 60,000 people die in this country because they don't have access to basic health care. That's not something you can just overlook. 25 million uninsured is not something you can just overlook. Over 60% of bankruptcies having something to do with medical bills is not something you could just overlook. It's also, by the way, uh, even if you have insurance, some freakishly high percentage, I think David Schroeder reported on this, it might be like 30% or so of, of claims are rejected. So you have insurance, you pay your premiums, you pay your deductibles, you pay your co-pays or whatever, and then when something happens, you submit for them to cover it, and the insurance company goes, no, we don't cover that. And you have even the people who are supposed to be representing you in D.C. don't represent you on this. They don't fight for your position. They don't even fight for the watered-down position of the thing. They've compromised on the compromise like twice, and now they're just begging for Medicare at 60, and they're not going to get that either. How toothless and pathetic do you have to be? And this is what happens when you basically say, as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said, is like, oh, Biden's doing, he's doing much better than anybody ever thought he would do. You know, he's exceeded, he's exceeded expectations. Why? Because he got one COVID relief bill through that was a one shot of adrenaline and didn't have anything recurring in it. That's why he's exceeded expectations. Because he reversed some of Trump's executive orders on the first two days. That's exceeding expectations. Now he can't get anything through regular order. They're giving up on reconciliation. He can't even keep Manchin and Cinema in line. How the fuck can you say that? They're going along with the party. They're doing the opposite of what they were sent there to do. They were sent there to be a tea party of the left to fight for the people, to crusade for the right policies, and they're not doing it. And now you get articles like this, which drive me crazy, which completely misstate the reality of the situation. The idea that, see, that, that's the thing. There's a difference here. When they talk about the left is okay with it, it seems like they mean the institutional left. And on that front, they're kind of right. But I hate this article because there's not even a mention of the American people. Because the American people have not come close to giving up either on Medicare for all or a public option or some sort of health care reform to improve the system when it's the number one issue in most Americans' minds. So... Don't write an article like this. It gives the misimpression that all of politics is just in D.C. The will of the people in what's supposed to be a constitutional republic and representative democracy is irrelevant. It's not even in the conversation. Again, I'm going to read you that headline one more time, and your blood can boil as I do it. The health insurance public option might be fizzling. The left is okay with that. The fuck we are, bitch. The fuck we are. Not only am I not okay with that, I'm not okay with abandoning of Medicare for all in the middle of a pandemic and what was effectively a depression. They wouldn't fight for universal health care. We're the only developed country that doesn't have it. Every other developed country has universal health care. And they wouldn't fight for it. It was a once-in-a-lifetime tragedy, disaster, but it was also a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. To say every point we've made about universal health care is being proven through and through right now with this. And you could even make the point, hey, we had a trial run in socialized medicine with the free vaccine. How'd that work out? It worked out phenomenally well. But nobody made any of these arguments because everybody's out to lunch. The institutional left in D.C. is a joke. They're a joke. They're useless. 
completely toothless, pathetic, no backbone, no fight, weak beyond weak. And here we are. The media runs cover for Biden as they're weak. And they write stuff like, the health insurance public option might be fizzling. The left is okay with that. The only thing they've done for health care, and you know this, is they've subsidized the private health insurance companies more, expanded COBRA and done some other stuff. By the way, they're subsidizing them to the tune of billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars. And then you go look. If, if you have the experience of maybe being able to enroll in COBRA, which basically means you left your job or you were laid off from your job or whatever, COBRA is this program that allows you to stay on that health insurance, but you have to pay for it. And the premiums are fucking preposterous. They're ridiculous. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And they act like this is some sort of deal. You just throw tens of billions of dollars in subsidies at the health insurance companies for this, then they turn around and charge people an arm and a leg anyway? Because it's a giant scam. It's a scam on top of a scam within a scam. The for-profit health insurance companies are parasites. They're leeches. They're a mafia, a middleman mafia. They're rapacious, and they get between you and your doctor and tell you what you can and can't do and who you can and can't see. That's their whole point. And the left, apparently, the institutional left is like, well, I would have originally liked Medicare for all, but we can't get Medicare for all, but then I would like public option, and Joe Biden campaigned on public option, but he's abandoning public option, and I'm okay with that. Maybe we lower Medicare age to 60. Okay, you don't want to do that? Okay. If the media did their job, there'd be a thousand articles calling out Joe Biden for the lie, lie of abandoning the public option. He lied. He said he was going to do the public option in the middle of a pandemic. He didn't do it. He abandoned it completely on day one. Abandoned it. And none of the articles were like, this guy's a fucking liar. That's a brazen lie. That's a complete lie. We all know if Trump ran on some shit that abandoned it, the media would put a zillion articles. Oh, my God, look at this liar. They, you know, they counted his lies, for Christ's sake, when he was in office, which is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. It was tens of thousands of lies Trump told. And he is a liar. Don't get it twisted. But there is a double standard. The media, on the one hand, would call out the lie. The media, on the other hand, is going to... Cover up for Biden. The left is okay with that. Biden lied, but now lying's okay because we're, we're saying it's okay. And not only is it okay with people who like Biden, it's also okay with the left. You want to talk to any actual lefties? You want to do, have you spoken to anybody who was part of the Force to Vote movement? Anybody? Mainstream media? Anybody. How many articles were written about that? How many articles? Just totally ignored. Just completely ignored. So the Overton window in D.C., and the Overton window in corporate media is so far to the right on the spectrum and so pro-corporatist that it's not even close to representing any semblance of real opinion out there in the country. The left is okay with that. I can't. I can't, man. I can't. When you guys have to come to a shitty loudmouth YouTuber like myself in order to get conversations about this, that's not okay. That means the system is broken. That means the media has failed you. That means the institutional left has failed you. But this is where we are, and it's heartbreaking to see. So he'll never be held accountable. If he told a brazen lie, like he was going to do the public option, then he immediately abandoned it. And these are the headlines from, from mainstream media? The public option might be fizzling, but the left is okay with that. So when Biden lies, not only is it okay, it's even okay among people who are supposed to nominally disagree with him from his left. They are controlling the narrative. That's what's happening. And it's completely unacceptable. But you know what? only get away with this for so fucking long sorry it's the truth because if the more they don't deliver the reason why biden's approval rating was high is because of the 1400 dollars checks and like the expanded child tax credit people got a little bit of help with that covid relief bill 
the more you don't do anything from then, the more his approval rating is going to slip. It doesn't matter who you blame. It doesn't matter if you blame the Republicans. It doesn't matter if you blame Manchin. It doesn't matter if you blame Cinema. If you're doing dick, it's going to come back to bite you in the ass. And it doesn't matter how much you have the media run cover for you. Because anybody who's really paying attention sees right through it. And they should. Joe Manchin wrote an article over the weekend, and he basically said, listen, I'm not going to do anything with the filibuster. We're not going to abolish the filibuster, and we're not going to reform the filibuster back to the talking filibuster, which was something that he previously hinted like, I might be in favor of that. Now apparently he's abandoning that that as well. And then the other thing is he's abandoning the For the People Act, the Bill S-1, which we'll get to a little bit later. I'll give you some specifics on that bill. Um, but he's saying, I'm also not for that. So effectively with this article, Joe Manchin is saying Joe Biden's first term is over. Nothing else is going to get done, period. The idea you get anything through regular order is comical. What do you need? Eight or nine Republican votes. You're not going to get one or two, never mind eight or nine. And with Manchin saying he needs my vote to get anything passed and I'm not for even these very basic things. That's it. It's done. And anything that does get through would be basically Republican legislation. It would be Democratic legislation that has been watered down so much. It would be a compromise on the compromise of the compromise of the compromise, and it would just be right-wing legislation. And if they pass that, then Joe Biden and all of his gaggle of idiots would go around saying, look at me doing bipartisan reform. Sure, the legislation is terrible, but at least it's bipartisan. So um, Manchin wrote that article. Then he went on Fox News to talk about it. Let me show you some of what Chris Wallace asked him. I want to ask you two questions uh, quickly, if I can, Senator Manchin, about that. First of all, you have made it clear, and I'm not going to ask you again, you said that you oppose scrapping the filibuster. The question I have is whether or not, and you say you hope that that will bring the parties together, the question I have is whether or not you're doing it exactly the wrong way. And, and, and hear me out on this. If you were to keep the idea that maybe you would vote to kill the filibuster, wouldn't that give Republicans an incentive to actually negotiate because old Joe Manchin's out there and who knows what he's going to do by taking it off the table? Haven't you empowered Republicans to be obstructionists? I don't think so because we have seven brave Republicans that continue to vote for what they know is right and the facts as they see them, not worrying about the political consequences. I believe there's a lot more of my Republican colleagues and friends that feel the same way. I'm just hoping they are able to to rise to the occasion to to defend our country and support our country and make sure that we have a democracy for this republic of all the people. I'm I'm just very hopeful that I see good signs. We're doing, well, Chris, more things than ever before. Give us some time. I know everyone's putting deadlines. Well, we're done by this, this, and this. But but let me ask you the final question, sir. I mean, let's just take the nine... Uh, the, the, the idea of creating a 9-11 commission to investigate the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, Republicans blocked that. Uh, Senator McConnell, the head of the Republicans in the Senate, says that he's 100% focused on blocking the Biden agenda. Uh, question, aren't you being naive about this continuing talk about bipartisan cooperation? I'm not being naive. I think he's 100% wrong in trying to block all the good things that we're trying to do for America. 
We get a lot better if we have participation, and we're getting participation. But when it comes time to final vote, um, and I disagree with with uh, Leader McConnell on this, the Minority Leader on on this issue, that he puts politics before the policies that I think we need for our country. I'm going to continue to keep working with my bipartisan friends, and hopefully we can get more of them. I can tell you this: in 2013, uh, at that time, Harry Reid, the leader of the majority party, the Democrats, right. basically took uh, the nuclear option, which did away the filibuster on appointments and district and circuit judges. Come back to 2017, uh, then we had Leader McConnell at that time in the majority, and he did away with it for the Supreme Court. So what goes around comes around here. They all understand that. And there were 33 Democrats in 2017 that signed a letter to please save the filibuster and save our democracy. That's what I'm trying to do. So when he makes that point about I need to save the filibuster to save our democracy. That is so dense. He's either completely stupid or he's a liar. Because the, the whole point of the filibuster is to be anti-democratic. That's the whole point. It is by definition undemocratic. It is used to block small d democratic bills. That's the whole point. So the filibuster makes it so that you need 60 votes in the Senate to get something through regular order. There's 100 senators there. So a majority would be 51. But they make it so you need 60. So, but 51 would be small d democratic. So you're not saving our democracy by supporting an anti-democratic you know, procedural maneuver. Now, listen, I'm not even commenting right now on my position in regards to the filibuster. I'm just objectively describing what the filibuster is. Nobody can argue. It is democratic. You can't make that argument. It is the exact opposite of democratic. That's the point of it. And then the other point is, again, he has the nerve to say he's basically like, I'm trying to save our democracy. He opposes the For the People Act. The For the People Act is to try to bring back some semblance of democracy. So what's in that bill? You have same-day voter registration, early voting, automatic voter registration, vote by mail, make election day a federal holiday, ban voter roll purges, paper ballots, crackdowns on foreign lobbying and super PACs, and dark money. It's a bill that makes the president and the vice president release their tax returns. It's a bill that effectively bans gerrymandering. I'm only giving you some of the provisions of this bill that he just came out against. But the whole point of that bill was like, let's try to have some semblance of a democracy in what's supposed to be a constitutional republic and a representative democracy. That was the whole point of that bill. And Joe Manchin comes out against it and then has the nerve to say, I'm trying to save our democracy. You're trying to save our democracy by opposing a pro-democracy bill and by supporting an anti-democracy political maneuver, the filibuster. Again, he's either the dumbest person ever, he's either stupid, or he's just lying to you. Those are the only options. Those are the only options. So he also says, or he's asked by Chris Wallace, isn't it naive to talk about bipartisan cooperation? And his response is basically, no, it's not naive. I think we could get this done. You can get what done? What can you get done? You could take some nominal Democratic piece of legislation that's already watered down 
and water it down four or five more times until it's just Republican legislation, and then you can pass the Republican legislation? Let me ask you a question. What's the point of voting for Democrats in that scenario? I mean that seriously. What's the point? If when you get Obama, for example, what health care legislation did he pass? They called it Obamacare. The real name of it is the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act is based off of Mitt Romney's health care reform in Massachusetts that keeps the for-profit health insurance companies intact. It also was originally from the Heritage Foundation, which is a right-wing think tank. So you vote for a Democrat, and you got a Republican reform. What was the point of voting for a Democrat? What was the point? What's the point of voting for Biden if at the end of the day he does an infrastructure bill that is just a Republican infrastructure bill? And by the way, if they get anything through on the issue of infrastructure, and that's a big if, they probably won't get anything through, but if they do, it'll just be a Republican piece of legislation. It'll be stripped of all of the good things. So what's the fucking point? But that gets to the main point when it comes to Joe Manchin. Everybody talks about him as if he's got, you know, he's just a moderate Democrat. He's got these moderate beliefs, and all he's doing is standing by his moderate beliefs. No, the reality is he's corrupt. He's bought by the same donors as the Republican Party and and much of the Democratic Party. And the fact of the matter is he half agrees or a little more than half agrees with the Republicans. And so he wants diet Republican legislation. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. Now, I remember, because we covered this back during the Trump era, um, they track, 538 tracks how often uh, everybody votes with Trump. And with Manchin, I believe it was between 50% and 60% of the time he voted with Donald Trump. So he half, or a little more than half, agrees with Donald Trump and agrees with Republicans. So that's what's going on here, is... He's corrupt, he's representing the same donors, and he also is just a diet Republican, and so he's pushing for diet Republican stuff. But this, the thing that's driving me crazy is this notion that he's not corrupt, and also that he's, like, abandoning what he's supposed to do. He never wanted to do any of those things. And so that's why the job of Joe Biden and Democratic leadership is to sit this fucker down and say, listen, son, we can be your best friend or your worst enemy. You're going to decide. You're going to decide. If you vote for our agenda, if you vote for $15 minimum wage, if you vote for increasing taxes on the rich, if you vote for our infrastructure bill, you know what? What do you want? There's two military bases in West Virginia. Do you want three? Do you want four? Or would you like it if we shut down those military bases, the two that are already there, and sent them elsewhere? If you don't vote for our agenda, maybe that happens. What do you want? You want an infrastructure project specific to West Virginia? You want a jobs creation program that employs 40% of the state? What do you want? We'll give you whatever you want to vote for our legislation. Do you want a spot in the administration? We'll give you whatever you want to vote for it. But if you vote against it, you are done with politics. You're done. We're going to run somebody against you. We're going to fund the person who's running against you in a primary. We're going to make it our number one goal to kick you out of Washington, D.C. and make sure you don't get a fucking job here afterwards. How do you like them apples? This is what you would do if you actually knew how to play politics and you believed in something if you were Joe Biden. Joe Biden doesn't really believe in anything. That's the problem. You want to know why he's not holding Joe Manchin accountable? He kind of agrees with Joe Manchin. Now, to be fair, he's not as far right as Joe Manchin is. You know, it, in some ways, he's to Joe Manchin's left. But, you know, if, if you have Joe Manchin who 50 to 60% agrees with the Republicans, Joe Biden, like, what, 30%, 40% agrees with Republicans? So he's not all that offended by what 
Joe Manchin is doing here. If anything, Joe Manchin is giving Joe Biden the excuse to say, oh, I wanted to do all these good things, and I told you guys I was going to do all these things, like $15 minimum wage and public option and raising taxes on the rich, but what can I do? I can't do it. I got Joe Manchin. He's, oh, he twisted my arm. He twisted my arm. It's not like I'm the president of the United States and I have a million maneuvers I can use, but I'm choosing not to use. So this is where we are, guys. This is where we are. Joe Manchin had the nerve to say scrapping the filibuster will bring the parties together. On what planet? We could come up with the cure for cancer and you wouldn't get 60 votes through regular order. You wouldn't. You wouldn't get it. And I, I love the question from Chris Wallace, where he was like, if you threaten eliminating the filibuster, then the GOP will maybe be scared and they'll say, okay, we'll come to the table and we'll get something done on infrastructure, but you have to keep the filibuster intact. That's a great point, and that's honestly a strategy that I didn't think of. But again, I'm not even sure I would use that strategy because the fact of the matter is it would, be, it would still be a shitty bill. So I would... Everything would go through reconciliation. I would increase the number of reconciliation options that we get. I would reform the filibuster to either eliminate it or go back to the talking filibuster, which would strictly eliminate, eliminate the number of filibusters uh, that can be done. And by the way, Manchin says there are seven brave Republicans who do the right thing. And so that's why he thinks they can get something done. Okay, but you know you need more than seven. So to say seven, that still leaves you short of passing anything through regular order. Doesn't it? But I've got to go further than that. The idea that seven brave Republicans do the right thing, where did that come from? I'll tell you where it came from. The attempted insurrection. There were seven Republicans who were like, I'm against this. But guess what? On actual policy, all of them agree completely with Republicans. They agree completely with Donald Trump. So there is no, oh, we're going to find some middle ground or common ground, or they're different from the other Republicans. They're exactly like the other Republicans. They just don't like Trump. But they're exactly the same on policy, which is all that matters. So there are no seven brave Republicans who do the right thing. Oh, my God, man. So, listen, now it's on Joe Biden, and my guess is he's going to lay in a chalk outline of himself on the ground. Say, oh, you got me. If he really wanted to get his agenda passed, if he really believed in these things, he has moves. He definitely has moves. But he's not going to do them. And he's not going to do them, I think, because he doesn't really believe in them. And so Manchin and Cinema are a convenient excuse for him to be like, I tried. And then the argument will come up again. Vote for Democrats. And then we'll do the agenda. And then people will vote for Democrats. And then they don't do the agenda. And the Democrats will say, but you've got to vote for Democrats to do the agenda. And Glenn Greenwald came up with a good description of this. I think I'm going to butcher the term he used. But it's like the rotating villain theory or something like that. Where you could blame Manchin and Cinema right now, but the fact of the matter is, even if Manchin and Cinema said, you know what, I'll vote for the, the agenda, then two others would pop up, Warner and somebody else, and then they would be the villains. And no matter what, you always have somebody who doesn't do what the Democratic agenda was, what the populist stuff is, and they get away with not doing it, because you could just put all the blame on Manchin and Cinema or Warner and whoever, if, if they take their place. So the argument is all of the rest of us are good, but those two are the bad ones. Really, in reality, there's about eight Democratic senators who are a problem. And we saw that with the $15 minimum wage thing. I think it was about eight who were against it. So again, you'd have to play the hardball with those eight and twist their arm and get them to do the right thing. But he's not going to play hardball with them. Because again, I don't think Biden really believes in his heart of hearts in a lot of the things that are on the so-called Biden agenda. So here we are. So nothing else is going to get done. It's beyond pathetic. It's beyond pathetic, and it shows you, it gives the corporate Democrats cover to not do things that they really don't want to do, because they all want to represent the donors to one extent or another. And Manchin is just like the face of that now. 
But uh, nobody should be okay with this. Nobody should be okay with this. You should want to tear down this system and absolutely restructure it because we can't continue like this. We're in like a permanent, an era of permanent corruption and neoliberal corporatism. And this shows you the mechanics of how the status quo always wins. Okay, next. Okay, next. Here we go, baby. Let's keep going. Looks like there's trouble in paradise yet again for um, the head or heads of the Republican Party. I'm talking, of course, about Donald Trump and Mike Pence. Uh, Mike Pence gave a speech recently, and he gave us this little gem. You know, we've all been through a lot over the past year. Global pandemic, civil unrest, a divisive election, and tragedy at our nation's capital. As I said that day, January 6th was a dark day in the history of the But thanks to the swift action of the Capitol Police and federal law enforcement, violence was quelled. The Capitol was secured. And that same day, we reconvened the Congress and did our duty under the Constitution and the laws of the United States. You know, President Trump and I have spoken many times since we left office. And I don't know if we'll ever see eye to eye on that day. But I will always be proud of what we accomplished for the American people over the last four years. Now, that might not sound like a big deal. The President Trump and I may never see eye to eye on that day. But that actually is a big deal. Because in order for that to become public in any way, shape, or form, that there was a disagreement on that, there had to be colossal disagreement and anger behind the scenes. And so he's, he's given a little wink and a nod and a hint to the world here. Like, yeah, I'm not fucking crazy. I saw what happened. Not only did insane, foaming at the mouth uh, Trump folks storm the Capitol, they were chanting, hang Mike Pence, and they were searching for him. So, yeah, he probably feels like he barely escaped with his life, or at the very least, barely escaped with, like, without bodily harm. So, clearly, he's like, whoa, what just went on? I was so loyal to Trump, and Trump couldn't unequivocally call off the dogs and say, hey, it's not my fault. Because remember, Trump, leading up to that day, what was he saying? He bought into this insane, lunatic, right-wing, fringe conspiracy theory that Mike Pence somehow has the ability to override the election. He didn't have the ability to override the election. That's utter nonsense. But Trump believed it, and so he blamed Pence when Pence didn't override the election. And so he's hinting here, I'm dealing with a psychopath. Now, then, after that, we get this news about Trump. Too soon to tell if Pence would be running mate if he seeks White House in 2024. Too soon to tell if the guy who is already his running mate would remain his running mate if they run in 2024. Too soon to tell. You know what that means, right? The big man is still angry with Pence because Pence is dissenting because Pence was like, hey, it's kind of fucked up that your people 
were chanting about killing me. Trouble in paradise. Now, it actually goes a step further. Today, Donald Trump was on Stuart Barney's show, and he said he might have, like, Ron DeSantis as his running mate in 2024. So, in case you were unsure or you think I'm, you know, making a mountain out of a molehill and I'm not being totally accurate in what I'm saying here, well, there's further evidence. If you're openly, casually chatting about maybe somebody else being in the running mate, maybe it being Ron DeSantis, then uh, they did have a falling out. I'm sure they had a falling out. And honestly, it really is amazing because without a doubt, Mike Pence was fiercely loyal to Trump every step of the way. Every step of the way. And um, that wasn't rewarded. And that's actually very, you know, anybody who followed the ins and outs of Trump's career and Trump's life knows that this is what he does. This is what he does. This is his M.O. He'll use you when it suits his own purposes, and then he'll just totally discard you and get rid of you when he feels like he's been slighted in the tiniest way. Like, what was Pence supposed to do? Pretend like they weren't chanting about killing him? Pretend like he wasn't terrified? Pretend like Trump really did make an unequivocal defense of him when he didn't? Tell Trump he was right to say that I, Mike Pence, can overturn the election when that's not accurate? What was he supposed to do? So Pence was super loyal every step of the way, and Trump still stabbed him in the back and pushed him out of the way. I mean, I guess that's what you get, you know, when you snuggle up to a man-child who doesn't have any leadership qualities, this is what happens. And so, you know, on the one hand, I guess you feel bad for Pence because he was so loyal the whole way. But on the other hand, it's like, this is Donald fucking Trump. Like, you knew what was going to happen, didn't you? You saw it happen with various people in his administration at every step of the way. Now, I wasn't one to really care that much or make the criticism of like, wow, there sure is high turnover in Trump's administration. But there really was high turnover in Trump's administration. And every couple months, he would just purge everybody and be like, you pissed me off in this way, you pissed me off in that way, you pissed me off in this other way, gone, all of you. So this is what you get. It's amazing, though, that even given the complete and utter disarray of this Republican Party and how terrible they are and how materially they represent nothing, why do you think they talk about cancel culture all the time? Because they're not actually providing an agenda that would help the American people. There's nothing economically or when it comes to foreign policy or whatever that would improve people's lives. They just talk about wokeness and cancel culture all the time. So they believe in nothing, and they're a complete mess and in disarray behind the scenes, but they're still competitive with the Democrats, which says quite a bit about the Democrats, doesn't it? So it's a total mess through and through, and um, Mike Pence is probably going to cry himself to sleep, and Donald Trump will be searching for the replacement who will be the next person that he eventually stabs in the back. Okay. Next. So here we go again, Joe Biden. Um, Every now and then he likes to remind everybody that he's Joe Biden. And by that I mean all those old instincts 
come bubbling to the surface. The same guy who supported the Patriot Act, which did illegal spying. The same guy who supported various trade deals that outsourced good-paying American jobs. The same guy who supported the Iraq War. The same guy who supported the, um, the drug war, was a big-time drug warrior. That same guy, every now and then, rears his ugly head. And that's at the core of who Joe Biden is. So the new thing that should drive you crazy is this. From Jeff Stein, Scoop, President Biden recently phoned Larry Summers, fierce critic of the White House agenda, as administration weighs huge policy choices per sources. Biden asked Summers to explain his critiques, which have led to increasingly bitter disputes with White House aides. So this is Joe Biden. Let me, let me kitchen table this for everybody. This is Joe Biden seeking the advice of the worst person in the world. Kyle, how could you say that? That's hyperbolic. That's, you know, over the top. Mm, no. This is a guy who said that $2,000 checks would, and I quote, overheat the economy. So he was against not even just the $2,000 checks. He was against the 1400 that Biden did. That's when he was like, this is not a good idea. Really? It's not a good idea to give people money in the middle of a pandemic and a depression where countless people lost their jobs or took pay cuts? It's not a good idea to give people who need money money. Thank you, Mr. Genius. So he's wrong about that. He was wrong on the Wall Street bailout. He was behind the scenes in the Obama administration screaming from the top of his lungs, you have to bail out Wall Street. Remember the details of that. The executives made the decisions that crashed the world economy and bankrupted their respective companies. And Numbnut stepped in and said, let them loot the treasury. Give them a blank check and then look the other way when they start paying bonuses to their failure CEOs. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Bail out Wall Street, screw over Main Street. That's Larry Summers. He's also been wrong on the trade deals that outsourced good American jobs. He was wrong on the 2009 economic stimulus where he convinced Obama to keep the stimulus number under a trillion dollars. And guess what? As a result of that, even though we had a recovery, it was very long and very drawn out, and we stayed in a recession much longer than we should have because he didn't go above that. He didn't try to do a $1.5 trillion stimulus, for example. He also is the architect of the deregulation of Wall Street, which arguably led to a crash in the first place. He's the architect of that because he's dumb enough to think that these guys are the smartest people in the room instead of the greediest people in the room with the most political connections. And he also opposes a wealth tax. I mean, the list goes on and on. Larry Summers was wrong about everything. And Joe Biden just actively seeks his advice. So if you thought for a second, hold on now, Manchin is at this point embarrassing Joe Biden, going around talking about how, no, I'm not going to vote for the For the People Act. No, I'm not going to vote to eliminate the filibuster or even reform the filibuster. He's just spitting in Joe Biden's eye. If you thought Joe Biden was behind the scenes saying, well, now I got to make this motherfucker heal. Now I got to make him fall in line. Now I got to use the carrot or stick approach. Think again, because you know what Larry Summers probably said? Stop spending so much money. Pump the brakes. No more big spending deals. It's going to lead to inflation. It's going to lead to all these problems. You need to basically do nothing and blame the Republicans for why nothing else can get done or blame Manchin for why nothing else can get done. And that'll be the best thing to do leading into the midterms. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. 
Nothing. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, Larry Summers might be behind the scenes telling Joe Biden, what you have to do is try to eliminate the debt and the deficit. And if Joe Biden does any of the things that Larry Summers suggests, it's, it's done. It's beyond done. I mean, it's already done. Joe Biden's term is already done. He's not going to get anything else done. But that'll just, you know, nail in the coffin type stuff where Republicans win the midterms and they win in 2024 at the White House. So that's where we are. That's what Joe Biden is doing. Joe Biden is seeking the advice of the worst person in the world. The worst person in the world. It's so funny that there were all these articles comparing Joe Biden to FDR. This is Joe Biden embracing the role of the anti-FDR. This is Joe Biden acting like Herbert Hoover. Shame on anybody who ever wrote one of those pieces comparing Joe Biden to FDR. Shame on them. Because nothing could be further from the truth. And that I view that as obvious. All right, next. This will be the last story before the break. Here we go. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez went to Puerto Rico to visit her grandmother, who's sick. And uh, while she was there, she tweeted a picture of her grandmother's home and basically said something along the lines of, look at how she's living. This is unacceptable. Puerto Rico is still waiting for the Hurricane Maria aid years later now. So D.C. needs to get on that. So, um, of course, the right seized on this, and they thought it was like a, aha, gotcha moment. And um, everybody came out of the woodwork to criticize her vociferously for this. Now, listen, you might hear the story to this point and be like, well, what the fuck were they criticizing her for? What, what did she say that was wrong? Well, I'll give you, you know, a little hint here. This is a Fox News clip that dives into it. are tearing into Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Twitter for posting pictures of her grandmother's storm-ravaged home in Puerto Rico instead of helping her. The progressive Democrat tweeting her grandmother recently fell ill and that she visited her for the first time in over a year because of COVID. Ocasio-Cortez then blaming former President Trump for her condition. The New York Congresswoman, whose salary is $174,000 a year paid by taxpayers, is now getting hammered online. Here's a sample. AOC. My grandma can't fix her ceiling without a Washington bailout. Also, she's letting her abuela live in squalor in Puerto Rico. And my favorite, honey, you drive a Tesla and have two apartments. If your grandmother is living poor, that's because you don't help her out. I'm surprised that a socialist wouldn't redistribute that wealth to their grandma. Sad. Sean, Desi, I'll start with you on this. Part of what was so shocking were the visuals of her apartment, right? So that's why the public reacted so strongly, especially in comparison to a Tesla and two luxury apartments. Yeah, listen, she's not uh, without money. If she doesn't have any kids, she doesn't have a spouse, 174000 for a single person is a lot of money. And so with socialists, though, uh, they'll have the government do what they could do for themselves, right? So she could give her money, go help her grandma out. But socialists say, no, 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 that's not my responsibility. Let the government do it. Let government take care of grandma. I want my Tesla and I want my next apartment. I'm not going to help her. It's actually shameful. This is just too perfect. This is too perfect with how dumb a criticism it is. Now, understand something. Do I think AOC is above criticism? No. Anybody who watches this show knows I criticize her all the time because I think she's made a bunch of horrendous, missteps, to put it kindly and lightly, pouncing on her 
for trying to bring attention to a lack of hurricane relief that should have been sent to Puerto Rico, because Puerto Rico is, of course, a U.S. territory. What on earth could be wrong with that? And then here's where my brain breaks. They say, oh, well, she makes $174,000 a year. She has a Tesla, and she has two apartments. By the way, everybody who's a, who's a lawmaker in D.C. has at least two places where they live, because they have to live in D.C., but then also wherever their home state is. So two apartments is like the bare fucking minimum for somebody who's a lawmaker in D.C. And driving a Tesla, if she wasn't driving a Tesla, she would get criticism because people would say, oh, you talk about climate change, but you're driving a car that's not electric. So she'd get criticism if she drives a Tesla or she doesn't drive a Tesla. So what the fuck are you doing? But the main point is this. They're trying to tell her to pull herself up by her bootstraps for a systemic problem. The whole point wasn't just to say, oh, my poor grandma. The point of that tweet is to say, Puerto Rico is struggling. People all over Puerto Rico are screwed because of a lack of the hurricane relief money. She can't single-handedly fix all of Puerto Rico. So this isn't an individual problem. This is a systemic problem. This is a collective problem. She's using her grandmother to illustrate a point. It's called an anecdote to make a broader point about how the system is broken. And there are tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or, I don't know, maybe millions of people in Puerto Rico. I don't know the population of Puerto Rico, so don't quote me on that. But there are a lot of people who need help just like her grandmother. Should she go help them with her $174,000? Should she be able to help everybody with that? Is that what she should do? See, that's how stupid these people are. They don't understand some things you have to view from the collective perspective. You have to zoom out and look at the total picture. It's not just about her grandma, you fucking dipshits. And by the way, I have no doubt that she's going to help her grandma. Of course she's going to help her grandma. But the assumption immediately is like, number one, you're not going to help your grandma. You're a ter- terrible person. Number two, two apartments and a Tesla. Ooh, as if that's some sort of like symbol of extreme wealth. Listen, I haven't seen the specific numbers, but I'm pretty sure she's one of the poorest members of Congress. And I also know that she pays her staff better than anybody else pays their staff in D.C. So what the fuck? Enough with the gotcha politics. I get it. You all don't like AOC. I understand it. Honestly, truth be told, I don't even like her at this point. But your criticisms are the dumbest fucking things I've ever heard in my entire fucking life. I can't stand this culture of, like, gotcha politics. Naha! If I take this thing you did and I put it out of context and I twist it a thousand ways, then it's bad. I gotcha. Don't you have anything fucking better to do than to partake in these idiotic culture wars and, like, make these stretched arguments that are beyond recognition and all bounds of reason? God, these people are so dumb. How do they not know that she's making a point about the system? That what she's saying is there are a lot of people like my grandma and they all need help and I'm not in a position to help all of them. They really try to do the pull yourself up by your bootstraps and the individualism shit to this. By the way, I love this point. I love this point so much. So Ben Shapiro, chronically obsessed with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, tweets um, that he donated, I don't know, I don't remember how much money it was, but he donated like thousands of dollars to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's grandma and was like, I'm going to step up and do charity because I'm a Republican, I'm a conservative, and I believe in charity. I don't believe in government, I believe in charity. And I'm now challenging, and he tagged a bunch of other right-wing characters like Steven Crowder and whoever else. 
I'm challenging you to donate to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's grandma, too. Oh, you know what he did? He donated either, like, the cost of the first payment for a Tesla or something like that. And basically the point he's trying to make is, instead of getting that Tesla, you could have helped your grandma. <laughs> gotcha. And so Ben Shapiro tried to get that sick burn in and got Steven Crowder and others tagged them and said, you guys donate this as well. I love how dumb the culture wars have gotten where now you have right-wing hosts trying to own lefties, nominal lefties, by uh, donating money to their grandmothers. For the love of God, everybody get your head out of your ass. Get your head out of your ass. For the love of God. Not everything is about individuals. Not everything is about people who you want to own. Sometimes it's about the system. Sometimes it's about the collective. Sometimes it's about fucking policy, you dipshits. You have apartments and you have a car and your grandma is not doing too well. Maybe you should just go live in a paper bag and under a bridge and give her all your money. How about that? I'm obviously being hyperbolic and exaggerating there. But the fact of the matter is this. If you're using this to make some sort of a got you point, you're a dipshit. You're an idiot. Because they, they, none of them even for a second thought like, oh, hold on one second. I like how my microphone is like refusing to stay in the proper place. None of them, even for a second, now I lost my fucking train of thought. <laughs> None of them for a second thought of the collective angle. Everybody immediately went to the individual level. And that's obnoxious. And it's dumb. And you're really saying a lot more about yourself than you are saying about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So please stop making fools of yourself. Okay. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, still got plenty of stuff to get to, including um, Trump's Facebook ban. So we have that and much more. Stay right there, y'all.
Okay, let's keep it going here. Talk about Trump and his Facebook situation. President Trump, or former President Trump, um, just got the news about his Facebook ban. Let me tell you some of the specifics from that. This is from CNBC. Facebook on Friday announced that it may allow former President Donald Trump's Facebook and Instagram accounts to be reinstated in January 2023. At that time, the social media company will reevaluate whether the risk to public safety of allowing Trump back onto its service has receded. This two-year suspension will prevent Trump from using Facebook or Instagram to broadcast his followers until after the 2022 U.S. midterm elections. Okay, so uh, there's a bunch of stuff to say in reaction to this. First of all, this would be right in time for the 2024 presidential race. So um, it is a curious thing. If the whole idea was to try to quell the Democratic fears of Trump, that's not going to do it because he might want to run for president in 2024 and the unban will allow him to use their platform. Now, we don't know if it's just like, oh, I'm going to reevaluate, or I should be clear, I don't know if they mean we'll reevaluate it in two years or if they mean like, no, he's back in two years. I'm not sure. Um, Well, actually, they say may allow former President Donald Trump's Facebook and Instagram accounts to be reinstated in January 2023. The word may is in there, so I guess they'll reevaluate it at the time. But, um, yeah, I don't – my feelings on this are probably not too popular. But everybody knows my regular spiel on this if you listen to the show on a regular basis. I don't even think I agree with having some sort of advisory council of experts to try to determine – who gets banned and who doesn't get banned, because effectively you're leaving up the decision as to who gets to speak and who doesn't get to speak to an unelected board that's basically picked by Silicon Valley oligarch billionaires. And they get to police the discourse. They get to control the discourse. And the fact of the matter is, if they can ban Trump, they can ban literally anybody for any reason. Now, to be fair, they said the... the, Ministry of Truth, as we'll call it, they said, hey, you can't, you, the way that Facebook banned Trump is actually not okay because they didn't have clear standards and guidelines and they didn't have very specific rules that they were enforcing. So it was very like, we just have the feeling that he did something wrong and so we're going to ban him indefinitely at the time. And they criticized that and they said, you can't just ban him indefinitely because that's effectively like the internet death penalty. And um, that may be overkill for the, the type of thought crime that Trump engaged in. So they were critical of what Zuckerberg did. And they did say you need clear rules and standards and, um, you know, time frames for punishments. 
So they are a little better in my estimation than Zuckerberg, but I still just don't like the idea of having some sort of ministry of truth. Because the original idea of Facebook and other social media outlets was like this. Your phone provider. So you have a phone provider. Has there been phone calls made using AT&T or whoever, fill in the blank, where somebody's committing a crime and one person's talking to another person and they're orchestrating the crime over the phone? That's absolutely happened. Now, does anybody look at that and say, oh, you have to ban those people from ever using the phone? Nobody even thinks of that. They're like, what are you talking about? Because they just don't think of a, a phone provider as being legally allowed or able to micromanage and nitpick who can and can't use the service and who's allowed to talk and who's not. It just doesn't enter people's mind. So in other words, people used to think of Facebook and social media like that, and now they think of it in a totally different way where they want censorship and deplatforming and filtering. And in my opinion, it's just a category error. People are just thinking about it like it's something that it shouldn't be. And ultimately, I think everybody's come to despise the world where they do have this ministry of truth and they do have an, an oversight board that determines who can and can't talk. Because even though if you like the target now, there's going to come a time where you don't like the target and you're going to be like, this is fucking bullshit. This is not okay. And we've given the million examples before. Everybody on the left who was cheering, banning far right figures from Twitter. Well, it turns out they turned around and banned Antifa as well. Congratulations. Now, even if you hear that and say, I don't know, that might be legit to me. Well, then look at Reddit, and they banned Reddit the Donald, but then they also turned around and banned Chapo Trap House. So, you know, it's always going to come back to bite you in the ass, regardless of what your ideology is, because anybody who is out of favor with the powers that be will be punished. And, you know, I don't think there's a way to enforce it properly. So in the case of Donald Trump, listen, this is an unpopular opinion, I'll admit that, but, I mean, I think it's the correct opinion. When there was the attempted insurrection, the riot on January 6th, Trump spoke out of both sides of his mouth. So on the one hand, he was like, I love you. You guys are all very special people. This election's being stolen, and somebody needs to do something about it. So he was very clearly egging it on. He said in the speech beforehand, like, we need to go to the Capitol. Um, but then he also said, all right, everybody, you're very special people, but I need you to go home. We're seeing what's happening on TV. We believe in peace. We support our boys in blue. So make sure you do the right thing and you go home. So since he spoke out of both sides of his mouth, yes, there is enough cover there where I think he could have said, this is bullshit. You can't punish me for egging on the insurrection when half of my commentary was the opposite of egging on the insurrection. Now, again, was his intent the stuff that's like, hey, go home? No, I think he was kind of forced to do that part uh, by his staff, but he did do that part. But yeah, in his heart of hearts, he maybe wanted to be like, Yes, like, let's take over the White House and keep me president. But uh, from the beginning, I think it was doomed because, as I said before, there was nobody in high positions of power at the Pentagon or whatever who were, you know, ready to carry out the orders. Like, the Oath Keepers, so, like, militias were ready to help Trump, but regular, you know, people who are already in positions of power were not going to go along with this. And Mike Pence wouldn't even go along with it. So, anyway, we don't need to, you know, rehash the events of January 6th, but the fact of the matter is, um, this is weird to me. This is weird that everybody wants Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all these various outlets to, like, ban people 
and have the ability to ban people and, you know, to open that door. Because, again, I think the solution to a lot of this stuff is very simple. It's you regulate all these big social media companies like they're public utilities. And you basically expand First Amendment protections to these platforms. Now, people hear that and they think, oh, my God, that's free speech anarchy or whatever. No, it's really not because it's still illegal to do direct threats of violence, for example. It's still illegal to do targeted harassment. It should be illegal in the uh, tech age to do doxing. So, like, there are still rules, but the rules are just the same rules that we have under the law, under the Constitution of the United States of America. And if those rules are violated, yeah, there should be an open, transparent judicial process where correct action is taken. So it's not free speech, anarchy, or whatever, but it's just the most reasonable standard I can think of, which is you lean as heavily on the side of free speech as possible, um, but still you're reasonable enough to understand that you don't have a right to dox and you don't have a right to targeted harassment and you don't have a right to direct threats of violence. So anyway, that's my, uh, that's my view on it. Um, I really think we're in this dystopian age now where this stuff is only going to ramp up. And we don't really have free speech if, if a corporation can take it away in the same kind of way that a government would, we don't really have free speech. If the public square is these social media platforms and you're banned from them, then you are sort of banned from free speech. You can go talk on a soapbox on the corner, but nobody's going to fucking listen. So you're talking to yourself. So I think most people will come to regret this path we're going down. But unfortunately, I think everybody's mind is made up and nothing I can say or do will change their mind. Okay, next. So last week, I remember um, reading that there were reports Trump said behind the scenes he thinks he's going to be put back in the White House in August. And if he believes that, then he's sort of fallen for this QAnon garbage. Um, And I said on the air last week, I don't buy it. I really don't buy it because it, it smelled like Russiagate to me. And what I mean by that is it smelled like liberals basically taking any anti-Trump argument they could think of and clinging to it and pretending it's factual. And it's just like, I know Trump is dumb. I didn't think he's that dumb. He's not dumb enough to think, oh yeah, I'll be back in the White House by fucking August. I mean, what a ridiculous thing to believe. Um, But there's some decent evidence that I was wrong. I was wrong when I said, I don't really think Trump believes he's going to be back in the White House in August. Um, Take a look at this video that was just released. for the tremendous support you've shown. We're going to take back the Senate, take back the House, we're going to take back the White House, and sooner than you think, it's going to be really something special. But the love and the affection and the respect that you've given all of us, it's really important. The Republican Party is stronger than it's ever been, and it's going to be a lot stronger than it is right now. We're going to turn it around, we're going to turn it around fast. Thank you all very much. That support has been so incredible. Thank you. So he said the the words there. I don't know if you caught it. You have to listen to it a few times, I guess, to really hear what he says. 
But he says something like, we're going to be in the White House, we're going to be back in the White House, and sooner than you think. What the fuck does that mean? Nobody's, nobody's thinking like, oh, Trump is going to run in 2028. And so if he gets in in 2024, then that's sooner than we think. So I think what he's hinting at, listen, he's either playing into the Q stuff to be like, you know, give him a little taste to make him excited. Like, oh, we're going to be in there sooner than you think. So he's either playing into the Q stuff to keep them interested. Or he actually believes that, like, yeah, there there's some wheels in motion behind the scenes where the deep state is now on Donald Trump's side and General Flynn and others are going to find a way to, you know, take Biden hostage and do a, a Myanmar military-style coup and put Trump back in, and Trump's like, yes, that's what's going to happen, and we're going to love it. I don't know, man, but that this is definitely evidence against my original thought that, no, he's not dumb enough to think I'll be back in there by August. Mm, he might think he's going to be back in there by August. Because, again, why would he say that? Why would he say those words? The only thing that gives me a little bit of pause is that he said it so casually, it almost might have been like one of those Trumpisms where it was just like filler. You know how Trump has all these filler words, he says? Like many, many people are saying this. It's unbelievable, believe me. Like he's got the filler things. That might be like a filler. We're going to be back in the Red House. It's going to be sooner than you think. It's going to be amazing. You know what I mean? So it could just be like an offhand nothing thing. But I don't know, man. That, that seems bad. I mean, this seems bad. It seems like he really thinks he's going to be back in there by August, which is like, if he believes that, oh, my God, he's complete and utter maniac. I mean, just totally lost touch with reality across the board. So I don't know, but I had to show you this video because it really is. I mean, I stand fucking corrected when I was like, I don't think he's dumb enough to believe the August, the, the August thing. Maybe he is. Maybe he is, but I'll leave it up to you. You guys determine what you think, but Jesus Christ, if he believes that, that is really, really concerning. All right, let's talk about Milo Yiannopoulos. So Milo Yiannopoulos has been trying to remain relevant And his strategy for doing that is, what if I tell the evangelical, religious, fundamentalist far right that they're right about everything, and being gay is a sin, homosexuality is a sin, and now I'm ex-gay. So he's found this new lane, he's found a new um, group of marks who he thinks, you know, he can get one over on and become a hero in their circles. And so... um, he went on, this, now this is Rick Wiles' show, or his network, I believe. Rick Wiles is the guy, hardcore televangelist. He was in, um, sort of like a COVID truther, thinks it's God's punishment. He uh, was an anti-vaxxer, and he's in the hospital now with COVID, by the way. So this is Milo Yiannopoulos going on that show, and um, look at what he says about what has happened since he became ex-gay. When I made my announcement, the first thing that happened which will make you laugh, but it's true, is dogs stopped barking at me. I am one of those people. You know, everyone's got that friend that dogs always go nuts around. You're familiar with this, right? You've got pets. 
But there's always somebody that dogs. Uh, my dog doesn't bark at you. Uh, I can't. My dog and that. you, but that's okay. No, he like no, he barks. Yeah, he barks sound, people. You must have some work left to do. Um, <laughs> but he doesn't bark. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. But, but I was always one of those. I mean, it sounds so stupid, but this is just how I think that God reveals Himself to us, right? This is this is just my experience of it. I was somebody who invariably, without exception, always used to make dogs go crazy. So we have a friend who's a political candidate down here, right, and her campaign manager has two of these little yappy dogs, and they would not stop. I couldn't be in her house for more than 20 minutes. It would drive everybody crazy. Um, even growing up, we had Alsatians, we had black Labradors. Um, they just didn't like me at all. The dogs don't bark at me anymore, and it happened almost overnight. Dogs don't bark at me anymore, and it happened overnight. Man, he is scraping the bottom of the barrel, trying to stay in that public eye. He really is. Dogs don't bark at me anymore. So what's the argument? The argument is that when you're gay, it's a sin, and you shouldn't be doing it, and that's why dogs bark at you a lot when you're gay because they know you're bad and wrong and doing something wrong and so that's their way of expressing disapproval. That's their way of saying there's something off with the vibe in the air because you're here. Maybe it's your gayness. And he's saying, hey, since I became ex-gay, dogs don't bark at me anymore. So obviously my, my vibe and my feng shui is on point now because I'm at peace with myself. Hilarious! The idea that somebody who is repressing their sexuality as hard as humanly possible. Like, I'm, I'm good, bro. I'm, I'm, I'm cool. I'm not horny 24-7 and can't stop thinking about the stuff that I'm into and incapable of focusing on normal things because my mind always wanders and angry and have a short fuse because I'm not taking care of a very basic need of mine. I'm good. I'm good, bro. I'm good. Which, I mean, obviously it gets into the broader conversation that we've had a few times in regards to Milo, but... You know, is it that he's lying, he knows he's lying, he's completely full of shit, every night he goes home, he blows his husband, his husband blows him, they have a little (laughs) and then everything's cool, Um, or is he actually like, I'm leaving my husband, I've left my husband, and I'm actively fighting back the urges I have. (laughs) I honestly don't know which it is. I mean, if I had to guess, I'd say... Scam, I'd say, you know, every day he's slobbing on some knobs. I mean, that's what I, I would guess that. I would guess that because that's, I mean, honestly, I, I don't know what's worse. What do you think is worse? What is worse? Is it worse to just be total scam or is it worse for him to, like, actually be trying to live this insane life? Because I've told you guys before when he threw his wedding ring into the ocean, which I'm, I call bullshit on, um, Trying to be ex-gay is like, you. think of you personally, whoever's watching this, think of what you're into, and then just think of trying to force yourself to not be into whatever you're into. How's that going to work out? Can you force a will yourself out of, like, the your very being? You know what I mean? Like, you can't, in the same way you can't, like, force yourself, if you're a natural introvert or a natural extrovert, you're not going to force a will yourself out of what you are. You know what I mean? 
If you get more energy from being alone, you're always going to get more energy from being alone. If you get more energy when you're around people, you're always going to get more energy when you're around people. It's sort of like the definition of an extrovert or an introvert. You can't just will yourself out of it. You can try to pretend to be one or the other, but inside you're going to know you're going to be draining yourself when you're with people if you're an introvert and vice versa. If you're an extrovert, so it's like the same, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're just going to, for the rest of your life, you're going to pretend like you're not into what you're into? You think that's going to be a happy life? Imagine how miserable not only Milo is, but the people he's talking to who are pretending like what he's doing is a real thing. There is no such thing as ex-gay therapy. That doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. I mean, maybe there is. Remember when they came up? I think it was, uh, was it cornflakes? Kellogg's cornflakes? Somebody invented, I think it was that, but it might be oatmeal. I don't know. Um, where they made the food so bland on purpose and the person's goal in doing it was to try to repress their own sex drive. I'm not kidding. Somebody, I guess this person was horny all the time and they didn't like it. It was getting in the way of doing other stuff. And they're like, I got to find a way to repress my sex drive, my libido. And so they came up with some very bland food hoping it would like reduce sex drive. I mean, obviously it didn't work. But like, that's the territory that we're in now with this. You know, like maybe there's a way to, Doctors can come up with something that reduces libido massively. I don't know. But even if you reduce libido massively, you're still going to be into what you're into, just maybe not as often are you going to be thinking about it. You know what I mean? So anyway, what a weird conversation that we're having in regards to Milo. But Jesus Christ, man. If he's trying to live it, it's super sad. And uh, he's torturing himself. And if he's scamming, that's also just super sad and pathetic. And, you know, the thing is, I don't think anybody's buying it anymore. You know what I mean? Like, yes, maybe the most hardcore Rick Wiles fans are like, well, it's a good man here trying to stand up for the Lord. But I think everybody else, even other flavors and varieties of right-wingers are looking at him like, really, dude? Really? Really? What are you doing? What are you up to? So anyway, what a phenomenal fall from grace. Remember what happened with him at CPAC a few years back? There was a video that came out where he was basically like, yeah, I was molested as a child and it was awesome like he said something like that uh, and he was like defending uh the whole thing of child molestation where he's like listen you build a bond with the person and it's not the worst thing in the world and you'll be fine what i'm paraphrasing it and i'm butchering it in a thousand ways but even cpac the people who are like we're against cancel culture they were like canceled and so ever since then it's been a you know long slide downward into irrelevance and now here he is pretending to not like dick anymore Good luck with that. All right, next. Dave Rubin um, went on some podcast. I'm unaware of whose podcast this is. I don't really care, but this is hilarious to me. So he went on um, some podcast, and he said that he thinks he has a good track record of predictions. Come on, son. Come on, son. So uh, we covered the story recently about how he's running out of people to talk to. He's actually like, no, left-wingers will talk to me. No, it's just that the left-wingers who are willing to talk to you would beat your ass into the ground, and so you don't want to be embarrassed, so you don't want to talk to them. So that's what he does. Anybody who's a left-winger who comes on and says right-wing stuff and likes me, oh, come on, I love you, you're great. Any left-winger who actually will rep left-wing positions, Dave's like, you're a smear merchant and I hate you and... So you're not allowed on. So, I mean, you see the way it works? It's very, it's a very Dave Rubin thing. After all all the people I've excluded, nobody else wants to talk to me. So I only have right-wingers on and we tell each other how awesome being right-wing is. But um, 
here he is getting caught in the biggest lie ever. Credit to uh, Dave Rubin clips because they were able to dig up this gem. And you're going to see some of Dave's amazing prediction abilities in this clip. It enabled me to see the thing early. So when people talk about, well, how, how did Dave, because I have a pretty solid track record of getting stuff right over the last couple of years. Yep. kind of because I was in the belly of the beast. I saw right. how hysterical these people were. So there's, there's no way they're going to accept the election this time, and I do think Trump's going to win most likely in the landslide. Trump is going to win, and he's going to win in a bigger way than he won last year. Sounds crazy, but Trump's going to get 30% of the black vote, and they know it. By the way, that original video is super long. The number of times Dave was seemingly making that argument on every show before the election. Not only is Trump going to win, Trump's going to win in a landslide. It's going to be historic. It's going to be out of this world. People don't understand what's coming. He said it nonstop. Nonstop. By the way, you know who else said it nonstop? Tim Pool. There are just compilation clips from now until the end of time of Tim Pool saying, not only is Trump going to win, it's going to be an absolute bloodbath. It's going to be a complete landslide. People don't know what's coming. And these guys were embarrassingly incorrect. Embarrassingly incorrect. You know? Listen, I predicted the Biden victory. I was off, to be fair. I was off. Like, I thought Biden would get, what was it, 330? The 360 electoral votes? And he ended up getting, like, 306. So I was off. I was off. But at least I'm, number one, humble. Number two, I did get it right, you know? And even in 2016, I got it wrong, but I did warn everybody in the video that this thing is not fucking over and Trump indeed can win. And it's going to be closer than a lot of people think. And Trump ended up winning. So, listen, you can't, like, it's one thing if you get something wrong, but you're humble about it. And you, it, you're honest. Listen, I got it wrong. You know, there were parts of it I, I misread or whatever totally fine, acceptable, understandable. Everybody understands this isn't easy to do this. Everybody knows that. We don't have a crystal ball, no pun intended, to my lovely co-host crystal ball. Um, But he's not humble. He's the exact opposite. I have a pretty good track record of getting things right over the past years. The fuck have you gotten right? What have you gotten right? His entire show is just like Democrats bad, social justice warriors bad, wokeness bad, and... Here, let me allow on some schmuck from the Ayn Rand Institute or whatever to tell you how deregulation is awesome and the rich should pay no taxes. Let me be, let me be a significantly dumber version of PragerU. And PragerU is already as dumb as it gets, but let me be the dumbest possible version of PragerU and just be a standard conservative host now. Like, see, that's the thing. When he repped the lane of, like, I'm a liberal, but I'm going to tell you conservatives are right about everything, then there was a place for him. Because he was like the person who, who saw the light on the right. Well, now he's done with that, and so he's just trying to be a regular conservative talk show host, and it's abysmal. He's not good enough for it. Ben Shapiro's got that lane. Steven Crowder's got that lane. There's a bunch of other people who have that lane. And Ruby's just not smart enough for, for it. I mean, you all saw the, uh, the sad occurrence on the Joe Rogan experience when Joe Rogan, without even trying, ran circles around Dave Rubin about a basic thing like safety regulations and building codes. And he never recovered from that shit. He never recovered from that shit. So anyway, there you have it, Dave Rubin. See, but again, the question here is, as Dave is saying those words, oh, I have a good uh, track record of prediction. As he's saying those words, 
Does he know that he's full of shit? As he's saying those words, is he like, God, I'm so full of it? Or as he has he really convinced himself, despite all the evidence to the contrary, like, no, I do have a good record of prediction. Sure, I got the biggest one wrong, and I got it wrong horrendously. But other than that, I'm good. I don't know what's going on in his mind. But my guess is it's not much at all. It's not much at all. It's one of those, you know, those, like, monkey things that slap the instrument together. What are they called? They're not tambourines. They're whatever they are. The monkey thing that's, like, with music playing. That's what's going on inside Dave Rubin's mind. Okay, next. So there's uh, some interesting experimentation currently going on in regards to the legalization of marijuana at the state level. So this is from The Intercept. Natasha Leonard says, Rhode Island Coalition pushes most equitable legal cannabis regulations yet ahead of inevitable national legalization. Rhode Island activists urge the state to right the wrongs of the war on drugs. So um, I believe the name of the group is Yes We Cannabis. Yes We Cannabis. Get it? Uh, play on words. Um, and listen to how ambitious this is. Apparently what they want is 50% of the weed business licenses to go to worker-owned co-ops. Okay, I see you. I see you. So they're trying to make it. And here's the, the key point. People are afraid, and rightly so, of big weed basically coming in, getting a stranglehold, um, and having, like, effective monopolies. It's like, I forget which, which uh, state it was. Was it Ohio? Was it Michigan? I forget which state it was, but there was some state where they had legalization of marijuana on the ballot, but basically the rules were a scam. It was like, only, like, these two or three companies can make weed, and they have ties to, like, whoever the fucking governor was at the time. And, you know, it was a monopoly. And people were, chose to, uh, were forced to choose between having some semblance of increased freedom or complete, you know, corruption, market manipulation, and um, all the riches and the spoils going to this tiny group of people at the top. And I think it just barely failed. We'd failed. That was one of the few times we'd failed. So I guess people saw through the economic angle to it. But now what we're talking about is really using legalized marijuana as um, an experimentation with real progressive ideas. So another thing is, like in New York, for example, I think as soon as weed is fully legalized, you're, they're expunging all former weed crimes. All, it might even be all former nonviolent drug offenses. I'm not sure. It's definitely at least marijuana stuff. Um, and so, yes, this is where we are now. The states are actually experimenting with um, interesting new ideas. And the other thing is to try to redress the grievances of, you know, this country's terrible history with race relations, you know? Um, there was slavery and then Jim Crow and segregation, and now there's a colossal wealth gap that largely is explained by the access to resources being so much less in minority communities. So a lot of um, states are having these rules where, like, the first people in line to get the licenses for the legal marijuana businesses are in communities of color. Um, and there's, you know, certain percentages, like this this percentage of the weed licenses need to be there. Well, now we got the most ambitious thing yet, which is 50% of weed businesses 
um, need to be worker-owned co-ops for Rhode Island. This hasn't passed yet, but they're working on it. And by the way, interesting fact I learned in this article is that it's the majority of worker-owned co-ops are actually minority-owned and, and female-owned, which is interesting, isn't it? Um, so anyway, credit to Rhode Island. I hope this gets through. And this is the kind of... Um, this is the kind of reform that I could definitely get behind, which is slow but steady experimentation with more and more lefty ideas to see which ones work and which ones don't. And, yeah, any sort of incentivizing of worker-owned co-ops to bring more democracy to the workplace, I think will have very positive effects. Credit to Rhode Island, credit to this group. I hope this ends up being the law, and I will anxiously watch what ends up happening. Far too often, people on the right totally lose the plot when it comes to wokeness and cancel culture. This is such a great example of it right here. Let's watch, and I'll explain why. Is Coke too woke? Surrey County in North Carolina banning Coca-Cola machines over the company's opposition to the Georgia's voting law. Joining us now is one of those uh, county commissioners from Surrey County, Eddie Harris. Um, I got to ask you this, Commissioner. There was a little bit of confusion about is it a boycott? You say this is just a response to them trying to cancel the Republicans, right? Well, yes, absolutely. Uh, I uh, perhaps it may lead to a boycott, but this was simply our attempt to push back at Coca-Cola uh, for their actions and being out in front of the opposition to the Georgia election law, as well as. Uh, the uh, woke, uh, their collapse to the woke counter, uh, cancel culture in the United States. Yeah, so what made you actually tackle it this way? Well, uh, as I said, Coca-Cola was out front on this, and uh, obviously uh, being a county commissioner is a very local position. It's grassroots politics, um, and I contend that our politics are local. And so uh, we decided we wanted to push back against this uh, woke cancel culture or push back against uh, Coca-Cola because they were one of the ones out front. And so we decided to uh, uh, remove the Coke machines from Surrey County, basically. Commissioner, as you know, all politics is local. So what are the residents uh, in your county saying? Well, our, the response here has been overwhelming. Uh, actually, it, it went viral yesterday, and, uh, I mean, I received hundreds if not thousands of emails and phone calls and from all over the nation. But locally, it's been very, very supportive. Our citizens support this, and they're absolutely sick and tired of this uh, outrageous left-wing uh, mob that is uh, – attacking freedom of speech, that is attacking people's jobs, that is completely out of control in this country. So this is a reaction to that as well. How do they not see the irony? Engaging in cancel culture to defeat cancel culture. Canceling to end canceling. I'll do the exact thing that I say I'm against and still pretend to be against it. 
are you that dumb that you don't see that you're doing the exact thing that you say you're against? But see, that's the point, man. They, these guys never meant it as a matter of principle. They only use it when it's politically convenient. They will flip on the principle in a fucking heartbeat. And they've done it a number of times. They did it with Lil Nas X. Remember that? He released the Satan shoe, and then all these anti-cancel culture righties were like, cancel him. It's a joke. It's pathetic. Now, by the way, the thing that he's trying to fight back against isn't even fucking cancel culture. Coca-Cola released some corporate PR bullshit statement that was like, you know, hey, you probably shouldn't restrict people's right to vote in what's supposed to be a representative democracy in a constitutional republic. And that's what this new Georgia voting law does. And the right's like, oh, I guess you're canceling us, huh? Nobody said anything about canceling you. What they said is, one person, one vote is good and correct. Oh, I guess you're too woke, huh? It has nothing to do with wokeness. It has nothing to do with cancel culture. It's saying that in a democracy, we should be democratic. Oh, I guess you're against free speech. What the fuck are you talking about? What are you talking about? Now, by the way, you can debate whether or not it makes sense for Coca-Cola or any corporation to get involved in those fights. I mean, usually what they do is the corporations get involved in more social issues related fights so that they can still behind the scenes fight against all economic progress. So they can pretend like, oh, we're on the right side of history as they're also on the wrong side of history when it comes to economic stuff. So there's, of course, there's cynical motives that go into it. But listen, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who ends up supporting the correct position on that Georgia restrictive Georgia law. The correct position is the correct position. I mean, how dumb do we have to be to not understand what that law is? If Biden just won Georgia when Georgia was expected to go to Donald Trump, and immediately after that, they have these new restrictive voting laws that make it harder for poor people and and minority communities to vote, doesn't take a fucking genius to figure out what that is. That's suppression to try to make sure Republicans win. So it's Republicans cheating in the election. So the argument from this goofball is like, if you don't let Republicans cheat in the election, you're too woke and you believe in cancel culture. No, the Republican politicians in Georgia are canceling the votes of Americans who have the right to vote. But it's just, it's out of this world. The hypocrisy is out of this world. They're literally banning Coca-Cola machines from this place. And the nominal point is, because we despise cancel culture, we're going to cancel Coca-Cola machines. I mean, I told you guys for the longest time, whenever people on the right bring this stuff up, it's just whatever pet, you know, issue they're currently on about, they'll pretend like it's a battle for cancel culture. It's a battle against cancel culture. You know what I mean? I remember covered a story a while ago where it was like Ann Coulter said something horrendously stupid and wrong and then people were fact-checking her and she was like, you're all just canceling me and you hate free speech. There's a very big difference. I, what, I, what we're saying is you're allowed to say the really stupid thing that you just fucking said, but I'm also going to correct you on it because you're wrong. And basically they're like, anytime you do that to us, that's cancel culture and that's wokeness. No, it's not. Sometimes you're fucking wrong. And I'm like, hey, you're fucking wrong. Yeah, that's just cancel culture and wokeness. So you can never correct somebody on the right on anything ever, or it's cancel culture and wokeness. Guys, it's all they fucking have because they have no substance. 
There's no substance. By the way, why are we talking about this 24-7 all the fucking time anyway? Why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? Because they have nothing on foreign policy. They have nothing on economics. They have nothing on health care. They don't know how to improve anybody's life. So it's just, um, the culture war nonstop. Oh, my God, the culture war. By the way, there was a poll. Carl uh, Bezier tweeted about this the other day. Um, there was a poll, and only like 11% of Americans put cancel culture in their top five issues. You're not going to win elections on just the culture war bullshit. You're not going to do it. It's a distraction because everybody's getting fucked over in the economic war. Everybody's getting fucked over by the oligarchs and the elites. This is so stupid. Congratulations on doing cancel culture to end cancel culture, which makes absolutely no fucking sense. What they want is the right-wing version of cancel culture, and they think that makes them virtuous. You're not virtuous. You're just hacks. Okay. I love this next story because it really shows you that there is a silent majority out there that kind of agrees with all the different things that we're pushing for. So this is in Newsweek. Petitions demanding monthly stimulus checks of $2,000 surpass 2.6 million signatures. 2.6 million signatures. By the way, if it gets to three, it's one of the top performing, if not the top performing change.org petition of all time. So it's right on the doorstep of being there. 2.6 million say we need $2,000 stimulus checks per month, per month. By the way, I went back and looked at some polling on this. Um, It was during the pandemic for the first time ever. It flipped to a majority of people who want universal basic income. Before the pandemic, and when Andrew Yang was running on it in the Democratic primary, it polled really low. Everybody thought it was kind of wacky and kooky and out there and unworkable, including myself. There was a time when I thought, ah, that can't really work, can it? Well, it turns out it definitely can. All the studies on it have come back saying the same thing, that this actually works really well and only a tiny percentage, like 2% or something, go towards vices like people drinking or lottery or whatever the fuck. People use the money. They need the money. And it helps. It's just social security for everybody. We have social security. It's the most popular program, and it's obviously for senior citizens in the United States. Why not do social security for all? That's what this is. But anyway, the number was 55% of the public during the pandemic said, we, we want UBI. We think UBI is a great idea. It's a wonderful idea. Because when you have an economy effectively imploding, because the world supply chain grounds to a halt because there's a pandemic, and so many people lose their job. I mean, there was one point, there was something that Matt Brunick tweeted that was just out of this fucking world. At like the peak of the pandemic, the number of people who actually weren't working was like 50% in the U.S. So in other words, you know, the way they do the actual unemployment rate is kind of bullshit. They fudge the numbers a little bit. When you include all the people who just totally gave up on work, people who were staying home, it was like literally 50% of the country was not working. So you look at that, people are struggling, people are slipping into poverty. We have a pandemic and effectively a depression. Yeah, the way out of that is to give people some money to make sure they can get by and survive. And you guys remember the housing crisis? I mean, still, by the way, going on. We're keeping the thing together with duct tape and bubblegum. But 30%, over 30% of people couldn't pay their rent. People need the money. And so, yes, when push comes to shove and everybody's in dire straits, seemingly radical solutions actually become very common sense. Okay, give everybody a little bit of money so they can survive. 
you know, we've already had some stimulus checks under Trump. Then you have now the 1400 under Biden. And people are like, oh, so the government can actually do things that aren't objectively shitty? We'd like more of that, please. And so here we are. Nearly 3 million people signing a petition for $2,000 monthly checks in perpetuity, or at least during the pandemic. I like it, man. It's the quickest, simplest, fastest way to get people the help that they need. And by the way, listen, um, we talked about this on a number of shows now, but one of the studies that blows my mind the most is this RAND Corporation study that found that from the mid-1970s until today, if we kept the average person top 1% pay ratio the same, the bottom 90% of Americans would be $47 trillion richer. So in other words, the system has been so rigged and so screwed us from the mid-1970s until today that the top 1% has effectively stolen over $1,000 a month. I believe it's $1,144 a month from every American every month. So this is a way to also redress that grievance. If the top 1% has effectively stolen $47 trillion from the bottom 90%, and again, that's the RAND Corporation uh, study speaking, not me, well, then to do $2,000 monthly checks, it's just helping to rebalance the economy and helping to limit the extreme income and wealth inequality. And by the way, I would, of course, pair this with higher taxes on the rich. So the more people who know that, the more likely even more people will support universal basic income. So I love the idea. I love how popular it now is. And hopefully there's uh, more political pressure on this front. And eventually we win the battle. Okay, next. So this is another one of those moments where, I told you so, we have a new Data for Progress poll that came out. Look at this, support for the wealth tax. 63% of the country overall supports a wealth tax, 63%. Democrats, 82% support, only 9% oppose. Look at the Republicans. 45% support the wealth tax. Only 41% are against it. More Republicans support a wealth tax than oppose a wealth tax. That flies in the face of everything you've been told about Republican voters your entire life. And then independents, 59% support a wealth tax. Only 26% oppose. So what's the takeaway here? The takeaway, yet again, is that Washington, D.C. is incredibly corrupt and out of touch and not representing the will of the American people. That's the takeaway. By the way, it's not just this issue. I'm actually using this poll to make a broader point. You know another uh, piece of legislation that even most Republicans support? S-1, the For the People Act. That, of course, is um, is the democracy reform bill. So what's in that? Same day voter registration, early voting, automatic voter registration, of registration, vote by mail, make election day a federal holiday, bans voter roll purges, paper ballots, cracks down on foreign lobbying and super PACs and dark money, makes the president and VP release their tax returns, bans gerrymandering. So even Republican voters, when they're not told, hey, the Democrats came up with this bill, um, and they're just told the actual policy specifics, 
the majority of Republicans support the For the People Act. By the way, Joe Manchin, the so-called moderate Democrat, opposes the For the People Act. So again, how out of touch is Washington, D.C.? How corrupt is Washington, D.C.? Where And I, I could go on all day, guys. Uh, raising the minimum wage, that's another one. Where, according to some polls, more Republicans support it than oppose it. So we have a variety of issues where the country is completely united and D.C. is against us. Well, now you know. Sometimes the numbers are astounding and overwhelming. 63% support for a wealth tax. See, and by the way, I think this stuff moved a little bit more, the numbers moved a little bit more because of the pandemic and the depression. Because we've seen how many articles that say, you know, billionaires made billions more during this pandemic and everybody else was struggling massively. And people look at that and they say, wait, 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 wait. That is not fair. That is not just. Regular people are hurt through no fault of their own. This has nothing to do with an individual moral or personal failing. This has nothing to do with people being lazy or whatever the fuck. It has to do with a broken system. Don't tell me the billionaires can make billions more and everybody else struggles and it's, it's okay and it should stay like that. So, you know, this is a logical consequence of that. People are like, yeah, tax the rich. What the fuck are we doing? So, I mean, I, I don't know how many times I can do these things and, and do these segments, but I'm begging the institutional left flank. For the love of God, would you fight for some of the, these things? Would you stick your neck out there? Would you take the media smearing you and siding with Biden who wants to do nothing? Lead the fight for us. That's why we sent you there. And guess what? You have a silent majority on your side. I wouldn't even talk about it in partisan terms. I'd go out there and say, I'm here to represent the will of the American people. This is the will of the American people. If you're a Republican, if you're an independent, if you're a Democrat, hop on board. I'm fighting for you as people, as Americans. Take on the fight. But I won't hold my breath because it seems like nobody's fighting for you. All right, guys, final story of the day. Here we go. So I want to have a little bit of fun and cover this story, which uh, shocked me to my core. Take a look at this. This chicken nugget just sold for nearly $100,000 on eBay. Look at that chicken nugget. That chicken nugget sold for nearly $100,000 on eBay. You know what pains me about this? Without a doubt, I've had a chicken nugget that was shaped like that in my life. <laughs> At some point in my life, I've had a chicken nugget that, that was that exact same shape. $100,000. So you're probably thinking, well, what the hell? Why? Two reasons. Number one, it was in the limited edition BTS McDonald's meal. And BTS is probably it's one of the most famous groups in the world, if not the most famous group in the world. I mean, just phenomenally popular. Um, and also, this character looks like some character in Among Us, I guess, is the video game. And so I think the person who originally put it on eBay, put it for some very low amount. I don't know if it was 99 cents or $1.99 or something like that. I don't know if it includes shipping or not, by the way. Um, and then what happened is it sat there for a little bit, and somebody put in like $14,069 or 14969 some weird specific number, but 14000 And so after that bid was put in, it was off to the races. And then People kept bidding, and we got all the way to like 99000 and change, and so it's nearly $100,000 it's selling for. 
I don't know what the fuck is going on. I don't know how this happened. I have no idea. But I feel like this is a great example of the economy being fucking fake. Like, really? There's that, there's that much demand for this thing? Like, I, what? I'm totally floored. I'm totally flabbergasted. I know BTS is popular. I know Among Us is popular. But, I, listen, my immediate instinct is like, this has to be some sort of, maybe not a scam, but like a practical joke type thing where the people who are bidding on it are the same people who put it up and there's actually going to be no transfer of money or something. I don't know. I don't know. But th- that's what I think it has to be because who the fuck would pay $100,000 for that? And if there is somebody who's actually paying nearly $100,000 for that, for the love of God, tax the wealthy. Oh, my God, you need to tax the wealthy. What are we doing? Probably, at this point, more than 80% of the country is living paycheck to paycheck. Half of workers make $30,000 a year or less. You have hundreds of thousands of homeless people, 25 million Americans without health insurance. I mean, the list goes on and on of the $1.6 trillion in student loan debt. But there's a tiny, tiny sliver on top that's just throwing $100,000 at chicken nuggets, chicken McNuggets, to be fair, as if that makes it better. So I don't know what the fuck's going on, but sweet Jesus. This is weird. You know, this reminds me of those stories we've covered in the past of, like, the terrible art that sells for, like, a gajillion dollars, and it looks like something that, you know, my, my niece or nephew could make. A lot of this stuff is, like, snob effect. But in, I have to admit, I don't know. In this case, I don't know what it is. I really don't. The, the art thing could be snob effect type stuff. This is more like either a scam, a practical joke, or just some really, really weird and uber-wealthy person who's just shitting money (laughs) 24-7, just dropping it on absolute insane stuff. So there you have it, $100,000 chicken nugget, chicken McNugget. That's wild. All right, guys. I love y'all. Everybody have a great rest of the day. Um, Got another amazing show coming up for you on Wednesday. And, yeah, I'm excited to get a bunch of this stuff on YouTube. Really had a lot of interesting stories today that can't wait to throw up there. So, anyway, love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great one. Peace.